0: All right. Well, this morning we are continuing with our study of the doctrines of the early church, what we can, what we call the Orthodox faith. Um, we have, in the last few weeks, taken apart and looked at the first line of the creed, uh, t- which talks about God, Father God Almighty, uh, Creator of heaven and the earth. And this Sunday we are moving into the next section, which begins to talk about Jesus. And there's much to be said. Um, and there are actually a number of lines that refer to Jesus and and what happened, and of course, that's the the core of our faith, so we would spend time in a creed uh, talking about that, and so we're gonna spend a number of weeks talking about Jesus and his life and and what what, what he did and accomplished, Um, but this morning, the the next line of our creed, yeah, there it is, reads this. It says, uh, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, his, of course, being God the Father, our Lord, and so we're gonna focus primarily on the latter half, of that. Um, And our scripture this morning is John. It is 118. It's brief. um, It says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And so this is John explaining that there's no one who's actually seen God. The only person who's ever seen God is, in fact, Jesus, who John refers to here as God himself. Okay. And so what we're talking about today which is attested to in this line of the creed is ultimately that Jesus is God. And so that's the, that's the point of what we're talking about today. And we're going to talk a little bit about how is that possible? Okay. How do we understand that reality? Uh, how has the church understood that reality? What has been put forth as ideas? And in many ways, and many times the church has come back and said, no, that's not it. That's, that's heretical. We're not, we're not going there. And so we're going to look at a number of those ideas Because as Mike noted, I think last week when we were looking through some of the philosophies of the day and religions of the day, those as well as these other ideas that we're going to talk about today, they've not gone anywhere. So you'll hear people espouse a number of these ideas which the church historically has said, no, that's not it. That's in a number of cases, official church heresy. And so we need to be careful that we don't find ourselves falling in those traps um, because it does impact the way we think about Jesus, the way we think about God and, and how that relationship works um so real quick as far as this line is concerned let's let's recap the first half of it it says i believe we've talked about that our first week the idea that our faith is belief um it is not necessarily rational scientific uh provable statements um but it is rather something that we choose to believe and then when we do that we end up finding an experience that justifies that belief Um, and so it's more than just a, a blind faith certainly um but It's somewhere in the middle between kind of blind faith and hard, fast truth that we can feel and touch and put our hands on. Um, It is a a belief uh, we we described as stepping into the light in which once you believe, you experience God's presence, you experience the reality of God, the reality of Jesus, the reality of the spirit, and you know. And so we can be assured, we can know, but not in the way that a modern scientific brain, rational brain uh, in our world sometimes wants to know. So that's, that's our belief. And then Jesus, we've talked about this at length. We're not going to spend a lot of time as a result today talking about this, but Jesus Christ, we've talked about the fact that Christ is not his name, right? That's a title. Uh, So because we talked about, I'm going to ask you, what does Christ mean? King, right? So Christ is Christos is the Greek translation of Messiah, and Messiah was the promised one, the one who's to come, the one who would fulfill the covenant, the one who would lead Israel out of captivity, out of uh, their continued exile, and was ultimately to be a king, right? And uh, at the end of this line, we get into the statement that says, he's our Lord. What does Lord mean? Overseer? No, not, not, past, not really pastor, right? Master, Okay, that's, yeah, that's better. Master, lord, overseer, master. So there's a, there's a sort of everyday usage of the term Lord, okay? Which is, think about, you know, you know feudal England or, or Europe in, in which you have lords and ladies, right? And so we, that term gets used that way. And that's what we're getting at here. However, in the biblical text, uh, Lord is the translation of, um, where do we go? Here, the Greek word in the middle there is kurios, which is Lord. But that stands in the Greek for Yahweh. So if you go back into what is called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, every time you see the word Yahweh in the, in the Hebrew, or in our Bible, if you've if you spent time in the Old Testament, you're familiar with seeing Lord capitalized, right? That is Yahweh, okay? That is the way Yahweh gets rendered in the Greek, as Lord in English. And so when we say Jesus Christ, our Lord, to call Jesus Lord in the biblical context is at sort of a, a, a surface level to say he's our master, he's our boss, but at a much more deeper uh, theological and biblical sense is to make the claim that he is God. To say Jesus is Lord is to say he is God, right? Because that is, that is the, the way in which that term has been used throughout the history of the uh, the the God of God's people of the biblical text and so to say Jesus is Lord is to say Jesus is Yahweh and so it is a claim that he is our God right so and then, then in the middle it's Jesus is his only Son right and so, this interestingly we'll fast forward this is a quote from Stephen Colbert Are you familiar with Stephen Colbert he's a, was a comedian he got started on the on the Comedy Central but he now has a late night show. The thing about Stephen is he's Catholic, but he's a devout Catholic and he's very Christian. And he had this to say, uh, if the son of a duck is a duck, then the son of God is God, right? Which is kind of a straight and easy, but it's true, right? If the son of a duck is a duck, well, the son of God's got to be God, right? But that's the claim that this, this line of the creed is making, is that we are talking about a Jesus who is a man who was flesh and blood, who walked this earth, but is the son of God and therefore God himself, because that's hell fatherhood and sonship works, right? Um, And that's perhaps a little comical, but it does make the point. So what does it mean though for Jesus to be God? How does that work? And that's what we're gonna dig into today a little bit. How is it possible that this man named Jesus is both at the same time man and God? Is, Is it possible? Can you be both at the same time? And there have been people throughout the time who said, well, you can't be fully both at the same time. And so there's gotta be some, mixing or meshing or melding or, or unifying. Um, and it has, I'll just kind of tip the hat. It has been the stance of the church at every point to say, no, that's not true. He is both fully divine and fully human. And what they have said is that everything that's true about God is true of Jesus. And everything that is true of man, except for sin is true of Jesus. And so both of those realities in their fullness exist in this Jesus, this God band. Okay. So, we get into what is the orthodox claim, and that is that Jesus is both fully human and fully divine, right? He, he, both of those things coexist in the person of Jesus. And theologically, they use this term called a hypostatic union. It's a term they made up, and if you ever hear that, what it means is God and man at the same time together. And so there's this union that comes together um, between the divine presence of the second member of the Trinity, the eternal word, And the humanity of Jesus as a person, those things exist together, unified, but distinct. All right, and we're going to get into some of that here in a minute. The best way to talk about that, as we did the other day, is actually to go through some of the history and see how it was developed. And in order to do that, we're going to talk about some of the alternative ideas um, or proposals that were thrown out there that were deemed to be heretical by the church. And, and these what we're talking about today are actually ideas that came up in the first three to four hundred years of the church that gained some traction, that were dealt with by a church council. So I've said before, unfortunately, that the term heretic and heresy gets thrown around all the time. Um, anytime that you know one segment of the church hears something from another that they don't like or they don't agree with, they label that person a heretic. But heresy rightly understood is a theology or an idea that the entire church has gotten together and said, no, that's not it. That's outside the bounds of Christian understanding and biblical truth. And I I don't exactly know how that would work today, how you get the entire universal church together, although it happens every once in a while, there's the worldwide council of churches that gets together and makes some decisions. Um, Usually that has to do with the way in which churches are gonna operate together and work together and try to come back together um, but in the early years, it was a matter of, we've said before, gathering all the bishops, all the heads of the churches, coming together in what they call councils, and then debating these ideas, and the first one we're going to talk about, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is Arianism, and this was the idea, Arius came forward and said, well, Jesus is not actually God, he is the first and highest created being, all Right? we spent quite a bit of time talking about this, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time today rehashing this, but he, in essence, said that Jesus is a created thing, he's not eternally divine and not a member of the Godhead, okay? And we talked about how that did not go over well. If you remember, his ideas were presented. The notes were literally ripped out of his hands, ripped up, thrown on the floor, trampled. And they said, you're out of here. That's, that's heresy. Like they flatly did, I mean, violently, I mean, not, they didn't beat him or anything, but they had a violent and visceral response to what he said. And it was declared to be heretical right out of the gate. And that happened at the council of Nicaea. And that's when we talked about the guy named Athanasius, and he was the defender of orthodoxy. And uh, this was the Sunday in which we talked about the eternal word is sort of beyond Jesus, that Jesus is, a, is an enfleshment of the eternal word. But as Athanasius said, the eternal word didn't cease to be elsewhere just because he was embodied in Jesus, that he still is eternal and omnipresent and everywhere. Um, and kind of in some ways, I'm sure for some of us, that's a little bit of a mind warp to start to think about that because we've thought about Jesus as the embodiment. That's what the second member of the Trinity is, and Athanasius was stepping back and saying, no, 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 he's still the God, right? He's still very much divine, and that was his point. Um, The second, we're going to spend a little more time today, is is what's known as docetism, and this was the idea that sort of the opposite of Arius. Arius said he was a created being. Docetism says, well, he wasn't actually a created being at all. He wasn't man at all. He just appeared to be a man. So he was God. He was a spiritual being that came, lived among us, walked among us, but just appeared to be human, but never really was. Okay. Um, and so this is, of course, was rejected by the church. And this is just a, this is a matter of biblical record. This doesn't really take a lot to refute. Um, and I'm just going to read a couple for you just so we're all on the same page. In John 1.14 Uh, We've looked at this passage a number of times over the last year. It says, and the word became flesh and lived among us. Pretty straightforward. The word, the eternal second member of the Trinity became flesh, became man and lived among us. Um, Then in 1 John 4, 2, it says, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And so the attestation and the agreement, the statement that Jesus was a real man actually becomes a test by which you can test whether or not someone or a spirit is actually godly and standing in the right place and speaking from the right place, right? Um, and then in Second John, he says, "Many deceivers have gone out into the world; those who do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist." So that's a little even. I mean, it doesn't even take a counsel of the church. Here's John saying that not only are you a heretic, but if, if you deny that Jesus was a man, that he came and lived in the flesh, you are the Antichrist. So not only are you wrong, do you have right belief you are the Antichrist? Like that's, that's, a, that's a strong charge. Uh, and then the writer of Hebrews says, since therefore our children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. And that comes in a, obviously a conversation or discussion in which uh, the writer of Hebrews is talking about why Jesus was, human why he had to be human um but again affirming the fact that he was in fact man he was flesh he was here among us he was actual He was not some spiritual apparition that just appears to be human he was in fact human and so with some quick uh, biblical work and there are plenty of other places in which the the new testament attests to the fact that jesus was a man so docetism out, is out the door like that's not so these are sort of the two extremes right on, on the one end Jesus is just man, he's not God. Church says, no, that's not it. On the other end of the spectrum, Jesus is God, he's a spiritual being, he's not man. And the church says, no, that's not it at all. So those are sort of the two easy ones to really right out of the gate, chuck out the window and say, that has no place in the church whatsoever. So if anyone ever tries to tell you one of those things, you can just kind of shut your ears and walk away and say, thanks, I'll talk to you later, right? There's, there's really no point in even entertaining those. These next ones get a little more dicey because uh, they make a little bit more sense and they sound like they could be right um, this first one is Apollinarianism, and Apollinaris uh, was a, was a thinker, a church leader, and he said. And I'll, I will confess that early on uh, in my life, I, I thought of it this way, until I learned that, oh, I'm a heretic, <laughs> right? Um, that's not that's not it. Apollinaris said that um, Jesus existed as a man. And we all ex- we all exist as men and women, right? As, as humans, and we have a soul. And and what happened in Jesus was, the logos came, and the soul was kind of removed, and instead the logos was put in there. Okay. So he's a flesh and blood man, but he's animated. He the soul of Jesus was the divine word, right? And and that makes I mean that makes some sense, right? Um, but what the church quickly said is, no, that's not, that's not the case at all because now you have, in essence, the motivating thing being divine. And so you're back to this, one, of, one of, kind of the key questions that we're having that sort of sparked this conversation and still I think plagues some of us in the back of our mind is, how, how can Jesus understand my sin? How can it be possible that, that Jesus was tempted like I'm tempted if he was God? Right? That's, a, that's a legitimate question. Right, if Jesus is Jesus and incapable of sinning, how can he know temptation? Right? And if Apollinaris is correct, if the 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 soul, the motivating, animating force of the man Jesus was in fact divine, well that's a that's a legitimate question. How is it possible that that's that's existing? And what the early church turned and said to Apollinaris is no, that's not true either, right? that there is both the word, but there's also whatever a human soul is that we possess, Jesus has it too, right? So everything that's true of you as a human is true of Jesus. So these two things, the nature, they talk about Jesus as being one person with two natures, okay? So the nature of of humans exists alongside the nature of Jesus as divine in the one person of Jesus, the Christ, the, the person. And everything that is human exists in jesus and so to apollinaris who would say well in jesus the human soul was removed and the logos was put in its place the church says no that's not right because now you're denying the full humanity of jesus right that's that's the fundamental problem with that is it denies the full humanity of jesus he's not fully human he's human in form he's human in appearance he's in a body but he's still at the core divine and not human all right what they're saying he's, he's both divine and human. So Apollinaris, Apollinarism was in uh, about 380 at the council of Constantinople, it was declared a heresy, okay? So my former self, I have to look at, you know, 15, 20 years ago and say, Sam, you, you were a heretic, <laughs> right? You just didn't know any better, right? In reality, a lot of us, and there are a lot of people that will spouse one of these ideas because they've heard it, it sounds, it sounds good, it makes sense, and you're just not aware that that's, that's really wrong, right? Um, and the problem, of course, again, with that is that it denies the full humanity, Of Jesus. The next one to come along was this guy named Nestorius, and he founds what's called Nestorianism. Um, And this is sort of the other way. And, And what Nestorius is worried about is that when the divine presence comes into contact with a human presence, so divine nature comes into contact with human nature, how in the world can a human nature stand in the presence of the divine nature? And so if the divine nature was unified with the human nature, it would necessarily be completely enveloped and dwarfed and overpowered. And so if they were actually united in some way, then then the humanity would basically become overpowered and have, have no say in the person of Jesus. And so Nestorius proposed that there were two natures that were alongside each other, but not connected. So they sort of fought each other. They were juxtaposed against each other, right? Um, and so they would say things like, the, the human nature of Jesus cries when Lazarus dies. right? We, we see Jesus cry, and that's the human part. But then the, the, the divine part comes in and raises him and responds. And so they're like literally like these, it's a schizophrenic Jesus. They're two different people. It's in essence, in essence active there. At one moment, he's human. And at the next moment, the switch flips and he becomes divine. And he has all the you know, divine attributes. And, and I don't know if he necessarily thought that he was like switching back and forth like that, but there, he's definitely sort of two, two natures. And, and his, his main point was they, they cannot be united. They cannot be connected because the moment that happens, certainly divine nature would overwhelm the human nature and the human nature, the humanness of Jesus would sort of disappear, okay? And so in, in some sense, it's um, safeguarding or fighting against Apollinarianism, which denied the humanity, right? In some, in some essence, we said that the problem with that is it denies the full humanity of God or of Jesus. Nestorius is trying to protect that, make sure that the full humanity stays there. And so he says, well, in order for that to happen, they have to be separate. They're sort of both in there somewhere, but they're, they're not connected in any way. Because the humanity can't stand in the face of the divine, okay? And the church says, nope, that's not it at all, right? We, we don't have a schizophrenic Jesus. What we have in Jesus are two natures that are connected and unified and made into one, okay? And so Nestorius, while you're, you know, you may, you may be trying to do something good here and you may be onto something in, in, as far as trying to maintain and you understand that there's both divine and humanity, it's not that they exist separate from each other, they definitely exist together, Okay? And then we get a group of people known as the monophysites. Say that 10 times fast, right? Um, actually, last night was like saying this in my room, trying to make sure that I could say it right. <laughs> right, a monophysite. Uh, Monophysitism is the theology or the idea that comes out of this group. And this was kind of the opposite. This, this said, kind of took Nestorianism and said, you're right, when the divine present comes in contact with the human presence, it does overwhelm it. And so, what they said is that the divine nature comes in and it is absorbed by the human nature and does, in fact, overwhelm it. And so there's some sort of synergistic third nature that comes out of it that is a melding together of a divine nature and a human nature. And so Jesus is something altogether different. Right? And you can imagine the church looks at them and says, No, that's not it either. <laughs> right? That ain't it. Right? What we're, what we're doing and we, we, the church very much wants to protect. And to be honest with you, I don't know that anyone has ever come up and said, here's exactly how it works. Every time we try to say, here's how it works, we end up in some sort of heretical position, right? Unfortunately. Uh, so there's not some like great answer, but what happens is people try to provide those answers. And ultimately the church is like, mm, that's not it either, right? That's, that, that's because you may, you logically, as you try to work these out, you are forced into some position that denies either the humanity or the divinity or the union of the two together, all right? And in this case, they're unified and they're unified so much that the worry of Nestorian, Nestorianism, they say, actually happens and that the humanity is overwhelmed and in some ways enveloped and sort of disappears. They said it's, it's, it's as, if, as if you took a drop of vinegar and dropped it in the sea, it just kind of evaporates. And that's the, the human nature just kind of disappearing into the, the, the vastness of the divinity of Jesus, right? And so at the end of all of those, and that was at the Council of Chalcedon. So that too was a council, a a gathering of the bishops that discussed this idea. And they said, no, this is not right, okay? And so all these things that we've talked about today are official heresies. They are officially ideas that have been proposed in which the entire church has gotten together in the early centuries, talked it about, well, they didn't really talk about Arianism. That was was out the door real quick, right? But they've hashed these out. They debated them. And they've said, no, that's not not the way it is. That what they time and time again uh, fall back on and insist on is that there is a fully divine and a fully human nature in the person of Jesus. Um, And at the Council of Chalcedon, which dealt with this last one, they issued what was their most mature statement about this sort of divine, this hypostatic union, the divine and human nature coming together, Um, And they said that it was two natures that were united without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. So there is definitely a union, but they are still distinct. So there still is divinity. There still is humanity. It's not that they meld together and create some third thing. It's not that one overwhelms the other and one of them disappears. It's they, they are united, but still distinct. All right? And that's all they said about it, right? And this goes back to the fact that the minute you try to push further than that, you end up in some, some place inevitably that, that ends up heretical. Now, that wasn't really the, the end of the discussion. And these, I, as I mentioned, these ideas, they, they crop up time and time again. And it seems like every time there is a movement in the church to try to explain any more than what the Council of Chalcedon said, you end up in some worrying places, right? Um, and this actually happened in the Reformation we talked before, I think we, 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 we recounted a little bit of our church history and we talked a little bit about the, the Reformation and there was Luther and what became Lutheranism. And then there was Calvin and the, the other reformers that became the Reformed Church and they had different theological ideas about things, uh, but they were kind of the two main groups that came out of the Protestant Reformation. So you had the Catholic Church over here, they had Lutherans and Reformed, Reformed churches that uh, kind of made up the Protestant Reformation. And then we talked about over here. There was the Anglican Church that was a, a kind of a different beast, um, but Lutherans focus very heavily on the divinity of Jesus, right? And when they talk about these things, they talk about the fact that it was it was God that was crucified on the cross, right? And it's it I don't I don't want to say the word they push into heresy. I'm not you know I'm not throwing the whole Lutheran Church under the bus today. Um, but they do focus. They do have a heavy bent. And so you have to, they have to be careful. And we have to be careful as we, we listen to those types of theologies because they end up being mono, Whatever. <laughs> 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 monophysitism, right? It, it leans that way, right? Uh, and, and we're not going to say that it, it, it goes there because they definitely do, do call back to the humanity of Jesus. But... They have developed the, the, that branch of the church very early on and since has developed this heavy focus on the over so overemphasis on the divinity of Jesus and downplayed the humanity of Jesus, right? And that's, that can be dangerous, right? It, just something to be aware of. On the other, other side, the Reformed churches have very much gone the other direction and become in some ways Nestorian, all right, because they will say, and Luther and or Calvin said, you know, that this divinity was not entirely transmitted to Jesus. Right, that in some ways it's it's uh, in name only or it's a figure of speech. They would say, um, and they have said, um, and they claim that Jesus's humanity it cannot and does not di- uh, bear the divine attributes. Right, so they, they make and they actually spelled this out that, that Jesus it can't be fully and completely divine because how can Jesus, a man? be omnipresent how can jesus a man be omnipotent right how can he be omniscient right and so what they're saying is he as jesus the man in flesh divine the some some of the divine nature is somehow kept back from the man of jesus well that's 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 nestorianism right that's that's kind of flatly when you hear them say it it's like, that's, that's not right, right? And Athanasius, who fought against Arianism, would like to have a word with them because this is where that's helpful, where he, his claim that the eternal word did not cease to exist everywhere else. It was that Jesus is a particular manifestation of that eternal word. So the eternal word continues to be omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere, right? Um, I mean, Athanasius said that plainly. He said the eternal word does not cease to be everywhere else just because he's embodied in Jesus, right? And so the second member of the Trinity continues to have all of the divine attributes. Jesus is a particular localized manifestation and fleshment of that divine presence, right? And so we have to look at our Protestant reference, like we are the inheritors of that tradition and recognize that we've gone on some weird roads here and there. And if, if we're honest and we need to be honest and critical about the things that we've been told and taught, we need to look at some of these things that have been, been said to us and say, ooh, that looks a little bit like that heresy or that one. And, and we got to step back and say, we're not going there. We have, to, we have to hold on to Jesus as both human and divine and fully so, both of those things, right? And how does that work? I don't know, right? That's the beauty and the mystery of God, Right? Uh, we'll go back to what we said a, a week ago. Why would you think that our human reason can comprehend the mysteries of God fully and completely, right? We can We can get at things, we can get at ideas. This history is the history of people trying to grapple with and grasp what's going on. And it's a good project, right? I'm glad that this con- these conversations have happened because we've thought through things, we've proposed ideas, we've come back and said, no, that's not it, right? It may be that some of those people insisted upon it and continued in their wrong ideas and that's unfortunate but what we now have two thousand years later is the history of all of these conversations and debates and we can look and say okay well it's not that and here's why it's not that and so these things have been thought through and unfortunately to some extent there's no no great answer right we can't put our finger on and say this is exactly how it works um there have been more recent attempts and i uh, under advisement, I'm not going to out this one particular man. Um, mm-hmm. If you want to know who this is, because he is popular, uh, I'll, I will kind of that conversation afterwards. But he has recently uh, proposed what he himself claims neo-apollinarianism. right? And he said that Christ has two natures, both human and divine, in which he agrees with the Council of Chalcedon and the, the, the Orthodox statement. But then he goes on and he says, the soul of the human nature of Christ is the same as the second person of the Trinity, the Logos. Well, that's, that's definitely Apollinarianism, right? So what he's saying is the soul of Jesus, which the church has said is a human soul that sits alongside the logos. What he's saying is the soul is the logos. That's Apollinarianism, that's a right? That is the human soul has been changed or removed and in its place is the logos. And he goes on to say that the, the divine nature completes the human nature, right? Giving it knowledge, freedom of the will and other properties that the human nature now possesses. But the old model of humanity did not. Right? And that in some ways is monophysitism, right? That the that the divine nature invades Jesus and sort of overwhelms it and makes it something new, right? That's well, so dude, you just take in two heresies and put them together and said that's what like that doesn't work either. Right? Um, and this is a, a, a guy today who's popular and, and he's he's very brilliant. He's a brilliant guy, right? Um, interestingly, he got called on this a few years ago, and his response was, "Well, it's a possibility. I don't necessarily believe that." And, and, and to which you say, "It's not a possibility, right? What you're what you're saying is is heretical on two counts, right? You're, it's not that's not the way it works, right?" Um, but again, he's a very rational. Uh, he, his his whole project is a. a, a a rational, reasonable, apologetic in which he's making logical arguments for God. And that's what he's dedicated his life to. And so he's the type of person that he thinks the way that he's gonna push in and push as far as he can and think heavily about all these ideas. And we think too far and we, go, we, we, we rely too heavily on our own powers of cognition and reason. And we end up in places like this that we just shouldn't be going. Um, and we just, at the end of the day, just have to step back and say, you know what, we don't know everything. Right? And we just have to admit that. Like we know a lot, but we don't know everything. We're not God, right? And there's nothing to be ashamed about that. There's, there's no, we all as Christians not we, we should accept and revel in the fact that we can say, God is bigger than us. Right? There should be no shame in saying, I don't know. I'm not God. Right? Here's their mystery, but I believe it. Right? That's that's core to our faith. It's why our creeds start, I believe right we 've talked about this before it's we can 't prove everything, but we live in a world in which everything has to be given concrete and rational proof and so to say i don 't know i don 't think there 's a good answer for it in this life is in some ways a cop out right but it 's not it it is the life of faith um, and in a conversation I think two weeks ago, Mike mentioned in passing as he was answering a question um, the philosopher Descartes and Descartes is is kind of a guy that lives in infamy because in his philosophy, he, he's the one that really started the modern project. He says, he's the one that says, I, I think therefore I am. That's his conclusion. You've, I'm sure you've heard that. Uh, but he started this project that said, I, I need to doubt all of my, if, if I have any doubt about whether or not a sense is telling me the truth, I have to discount it as proof, right? And so he says, well, I've seen things or I thought I've seen things that don't, aren't really there, I've heard sounds that aren't, aren't really there before. So my eyesight and my hearing have deceived me. I can't count those as uh, ironclad proof for anything. So anything I see, I have to question. Anything I hear, I question. So anything with the smells. In fact, he goes so far as to say, I've had dreams that have seemed so real that I thought were real until I woke up. He says, "So I can't." at the end he says, I have to doubt my entire experience, right? Um, and. And ultimately, he ends up saying, well, the only thing that I know for certain is that I can think, right? And he says, well, that's where he says, I think, therefore I exist. Because I think, I know I exist, right? And then he built his system out of that. But in, during that process, he, he asks questions about um, the, the mind and the body, or the soul and the body. And he, he proposes or is trying to deal with this thing called mind-body dualism, And he's really the first one to really call that out of the open and make it a problem. But the the problem is that never has been answered. Again, this is one of the ways that the the philosophical, rational project has fallen apart, is if if I asked you where your soul is, what would you tell me? In where? We've opened people up. We've not found it, right? So the, the, the point I'm making here is, we can't even describe ourselves, right? What we're we're here today talking about is this this God-man that has a human nature alongside a divine nature. And some of us will struggle with it, and there will be people who say, I can't accept that. When in reality, we we can't even describe ourselves. Like, just deal with a human. Forget divine for a minute. Can you describe to me and tell me how your mind and your soul exist in your body? You can't. Science can't, right? So this is just a reality that we live with with ourselves. So I, I just what was that? Yep. Right. So we don't like we can't fit it together. There have been you know the more we learn, the more we this it actually becomes a problem, right? It's a, it's a problem of evidence, not necessarily a, a theological or philosophical problem. Well, it was a philosophical problem, obviously, but but. We, we, can't, we struggle even to say that, that I exist at the end of the day. I mean, that, that was the, that's the problem of postmodernism. That's the problem that Descartes started, right? He starts questioning, like, how do I know I even exist? In fact, when he says, I think, therefore, I am, philosophers come back and say, no, no, you, you mess that up. Because when you say, I think, you already presuppose, you presuppose an I. Actually, all you can do is say, thought exists. You may be a figment of somebody else's imagination, and you can't prove otherwise, right? All that to say... Don't freak out because we don't know the answer of how the divine and the human natures unite within Jesus. There's a lot more we can't explain too, and we just go on with our lives if it's okay, right? We, there's a lot we can't explain, and we need to be okay with that. We, whether you realize it or not, you're okay with that, right? You, you can't do these other things, and it's been proven time and time again to be a failed project to try to prove it. Um, and, and so we need to just be okay and accept the orthodox historic claim as Christians that Jesus is the God-man, that Jesus is fully divine, he's fully human, those two natures in one person coexist, united, but remain distinct and separate. Somehow. Right? Now, why is that important? Right? Why is it, why is it important? Why do we care so much that Jesus remains human? Why do you care that Jesus is human? Yeah that's actually a bit that's a big piece of it right that and, and it kind of goes to one of the, the, the questions that people ask is like well how can God understand my suffering how can how can God understand my temptation to sin right how can God understand that he's God well the claim is well he is but he's also fully human every desire and temptation that you have he had he did he was fully human everything about you except the fact that he didn't give into it, right? Except for the fact that you and I, we follow that temptation from time to time, right? He resisted, but he felt it, right? He knows it. He experienced it. He really wept for Lazarus. He grieved. He understands that, right? He was worried and scared, you know, praying to his father to please remove the cut from him as he knew he was going to his death, right? He, he knows that terror. He knows, I mean, on the cross, he cries out, you have forsaken me. He knows the feeling of being abandoned and left because he is fully human. And if you go down one of these other routes in which humanity is, is you know, encompassed or replaced by the divine, you no longer have a Jesus that can do that, that was able to, feel that or go through that or that can empathize with you right the passage we read from hebrews was from a section in which uh, he the, the writer was talking about jesus was fully human, human and it was important because uh, only a human could fulfill the covenant right it's a covenant between god and man it has to be a man if if jesus is not divine well then the covenant's not really fulfilled not as it ought to have been it has to be a man right and so there's a theological covenantal reason as well that, that it really matters. But why is it also important that he's divine? Why is it important that he's not just a man? Sure, but just a player or a fan couldn't design a basketball stadium, right? It has to be something bigger and, and, and outside of that, right? And it, it, that's, a, that's a worthwhile analogy. Let's not push it too far, of course, but, but, but God can, yeah, Jesus, at the end of the day, Jesus knows exactly what you went, for, went through and he can do something about it, right? He is, he's God. He understands it. He's been through it, right? He, when, when you're alone at night and, and the world's falling out around you, right? He understands, you know? As Jeff and Cynthia and Marge and the family are bereaved and mourning today, the loss of Ray, right? Jesus knows that. He lost Lazarus, right? He lost other friends. He's gone through that, right? But he's also the second member of the Trinity who sends the third member of the Trinity to help, the advocate, the helper, right? The indwelling, the comforter, right? Because he's God, he can do that part for you, right? Because he's God, he's worthy of our worship. That was one of the problems with Arianism is that if God is just, or Jesus is just a creative thing, he's not worthy of our worship. He's just another being like you are. Maybe the first one, maybe the highest one, but he's just another being. He's not God. And so to worship Jesus would be heretical. And so it's crucial that Jesus is both God and man so that he can empathize with us. He knows, he understands, he fulfilled the covenant in our place as a human, but he can also come to our aid and our rescue. He really does sit on the throne as the almighty God, the God-man, our King, our Messiah, our Christ, who understands and stands ready to help. It matters that we, we hold on to this claim that the church has always held on to that God is both fully human and fully divine. It matters. Let's pray. Heavenly father, we thank you for your one and only son, Jesus, the Christ our Lord and our Savior. We thank you that you saw fit to embody yourself in the man of Jesus, to come and live among us, to teach us to be our example, to fulfill the covenant which we we fail to do ourselves, to do that on behalf of us, and then to die, to bring us back into relationship with you to resurrect, to ascend, and to become our king. So that we now have a God, a king, who knows us intimately, who has had experiences just as we have, who can empathize and draw near to us, but also has the power to comfort us. And God, we just ask that you would you would fill us with your spirit now, that you would help us to be drawn near to you, that that knowing that Christ has had those experiences, we would rest in the knowledge that we are not alone in any of our experiences, that you are right there with us even now, and that you know what it feels like, and that you are God and you are big enough and powerful enough to do something about it. So God, today we we affirm, we, we proclaim that in Jesus You became human, fully God, fully man. And we proclaim that we believe that. And we ask that you would allow that truth to become real to us, to transform us, to transform our understanding of who you are, who Jesus is, so that we might become more truly your sons and daughters in this world. We ask all this in the name of your son and the power of your spirit. Amen.